We're starting this podcast by going back in time. Is here at the World's Fair. Better things for better living through chemistry for the finer world we want. Better things for better living through chemistry. That's the promise of you. That was a performance commercial by the company DuPont at the 1964 World's Fair in New York. World Fairs showcase the marvels of design and innovation. For example, the Eiffel Tower was unveiled at a fair in 1889. In the 1964 fair, the Ford Mustang made its debut, color photographs, the first basic computer, and a picture phone. DuPont was there reminding fairgoers that it was the leader in providing the new products they wanted and needed. Every day that we are living is such a thrill that we can't stay nonchalant. Better things for better living are coming still. That's the promise of The company was started by a Frenchman who saw a demand in America for gunpowder. He built powder mills in Delaware and then later manufactured nitroglycerin and dynamite, and branched out to lacquers and leather finishes, moving to plastics, paints, acids, and then heavy chemicals. Today, it's the world's largest producer of chemicals and science-based products. Today, engineers help DuPont make lives better, safer, and healthier for people everywhere. In other words, we continue to help make the impossible possible. DuPont made the impossible possible by using synthetic chemicals to create products that would change the world. Teflon cookware was a sensation when it came onto the market. Kevlar is used in body armor, polyester in everything from clothing to furniture, rope, and fishing nets. Lycra or spandex is a highly breathable fabric which repels moisture. It's used in underwear, bike shorts, yoga pants, and hiking clothing. Today, there are many companies like DuPont making these products. And there's always a newer and better version of everything, mostly driven by chemicals. Welcome to the Poison Detectives podcast, a production of Canada's National Observer. This podcast is made possible by the Dragonfly Fund in collaboration with the Institute of Sustainability and Education and Action. Among the Dragonfly priorities is working towards a toxic-free world for the health of people and the planet. I'm Sandra Bartlett, and this podcast examines the chemical world we all live in, a chemical world that our regulators can't or won't protect us from. Episode 1, Secret Ingredient. To the war room, Sandra. So this looks like the knitting room. Yes, that's one thing you could call it. I'm in Ringe, New Hampshire, a couple of hours from Boston. I'm with Diane Cotter in her office at the back of her house. One wall has two bookstands with shelves of wicker baskets, and the baskets are filled with knitting wool, knitting needles, and other supplies. There's a raised table in the middle of the room with a bar stool nestled underneath, and on top are her latest knitting projects. We call them whips, works in progress. Every knitter has a bunch of whips. 
Her whips are a shawl and sweaters for her two grandsons. But the knitting takes a back seat to the work she does here. We also call it the war room. Her desk on the other side of the room is up against a large window. It looks out onto Diane's backyard, a backyard that backs into a forest. Her four-month-old puppy Coco naps in her bed next to the desk until she decides it's time for Diane to take a break and play with her. Some days there aren't too many breaks, especially if Diane discovers another clue to follow. Diane is not a scientist, she's not a researcher, she's not a sleuth, she's not a journalist. But she became all of those things when her firefighter husband, Paul, got sick in 2014. I had a husband at 28 years, came home every day with a smile on his face, you know. The job was the love of his life. He used to walk up the stairs and slam his big <laughs> size 14 boots on the wooden stairs coming up through the kitchen, push open the door with a smile on his face. Paul's cancer was found when blood tests in preparation for cataract surgery showed his levels of PSA, prostate-specific antigen, were high. Getting it checked out was just routine, until it wasn't. And I remember being, um, you know, in a rush that day because I wanted to get on with the errands that I had to do. And here I was going to have to go downtown and Worcester and pack and get in the hospital and sit through this, you know, ordinary procedure. And the doctor was so congenial in speaking to Paul, very nonchalant. And I thought, okay, hurry up, let's get on with this. Got shopping to do here. And then all of a sudden he says, yeah, it's cancer. And in that second, I screamed. I can still see myself screaming and falling into the chair. I was stunned. I was shocked. Nobody in my family, there's no history of prostate. Or I'd never given it a thought. And I had no symptoms, no, no idea at all. You know, what did the doctor tell you about prognosis? He joked, he smirked, he says, well, what are you worried about? He goes, it's not going to kill you. I said, I have cancer. He goes, well, you're young enough. Um, it seems to be contained. And I didn't tell anyone on the job because I didn't want to be that sick guy. Oh, poor Paul with cancer. I didn't want to be that guy. The urologist says, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't, I don't know. You tell me. Do you do the radiation? Do you do surgery? I, I don't know. I don't know. I just wanted it out. Most men who get prostate cancer are older than 65. I've always heard that doctors tell men, ah, you can live with prostate cancer. Something else will probably kill you before the prostate cancer does. I've heard it, but I have a handful of friends that have died from prostate cancer. All of those friends were firefighters, young like Paul was when he was diagnosed at age 55. Paul became a firefighter when he was 28, sort of by default. Becoming a firefighter was never on his radar. But after his friends joined up, he got to thinking about it and decided to write the firefighter's entry test. He passed, joined up, and found his calling. It was a career with health benefits and a great pension, and I never gave the dangers much thought initially. Paul shows me his firefighting scrapbook. Big fires, big rescues, and commendations. Uh, firefighters Paul Carter, Robert LaRose, and Brian Pierce. 
ascended the rear stairway through high heat, dense smoke, forced entry to the apartment, located the occupant unconscious, carried him down from the third floor to the street. The rescue was completed without the benefit of a charged hose line or ventilation. Paul explains there's a method for searching room to room in a building where the smoke prevents you from seeing anything. We have left-hand and right-hand searches. You keep your hand on a wall, the right hand, and you make your way all the way around that room or that apartment. Now, if you want to get out, you turn around. You put the opposite hand on the wall and you can get yourself back out. But if you take a turn and you lose your bearings, sometimes the best thing is just to sit still now stop for a moment and try to go back to where you came or try to find a window. So was it a pretty macho environment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And nobody complained? No. Whatever happened was just part of the job. To rescue people from buildings that are full of smoke and flames and toxic air, you need protective gear, a lot of it. Jackets, pants, boots, hat, respirator. When I first got on, we had long uh, rubberized coats and the pull-up rubber boots. That was the standard. That was the standard. I would think that a rubber coat would be pretty hot. They are hot. That was one of the issues they looked at when they were changing the makeup of the gear. It trapped heat. Trapped heat against your chest affected your heart. And back then, heart attacks was the number one killer of firefighters. What a thought. The rubber coat trapping heat and damaging a firefighter's heart. The safety gear wasn't as safe as it could be. But then in the 1980s, new equipment came along, more protective and a little more comfortable. It was lighter, it, it breathed, it, uh, you know, it was pretty much bulletproof. It was indestructible. After 24 years, Paul decided to make a change and go after a promotion to lieutenant. I had been on the same company for 24 years. I could see the end of my career quickly approaching. So I thought I'd take a test and try to get promoted. But now you're the company commander. Um, a promotion meant you were responsible for your company and your men, and you know I figured I was due for that. Paul had barely stepped into the new role when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And after treatment, it was clear he couldn't go back to work. To the new job, he hadn't even really started. Now he was at home grieving and in shock at how fast it had all ended. Initially, I didn't know what to think. I was kind of in a, kind of in a fog. Um, you got to know my husband. He wears a high and tight laptop and he's clean shaven every day and you know dressed and takes such good care of himself but he was spending weeks sitting in the cleaning chair his hair had grown long and he was attached to a catheter bag and it was awful I had had this bodybuilding husband you know looked like the rock that now looked like Grizzly Adams in, in the depression. One day, Paul got the phone call that started bringing him back to life. I got a phone call from one of my other buddies. He said, I just got diagnosed with prostate. What do I do? I said, oh, geez. I said, all right. 
call this hospital, get this doctor in Boston, do this, or disability pension, I'll help you with that. I just went through it. Another month goes by, and another guy called me. These are all firefighters that I worked with. Another one called me and said, Paul, I just got diagnosed with prostate. What do I do? All right, all right. here's what you do. And then another one and another one. And I started a list. Diane took note and wanted answers. Why were all these firefighters getting similar cancers? And Paul's list was growing. I have 55 names on my list. Just friends of mine that I worked with all diagnosed with cancer. 31 of those men had prostate cancer, just like Paul, and most of them worked at his fire station. One day, Diane came across an article about a New Jersey firefighter who died from steam burns. Steam burns over his entire body. And I was horrified by the vision of that because this was a, I think he was 48 years old, and he had worn his gear, thinking it was protecting him, but the gear had degraded. The article said the gear had degraded. What did that mean? And that's when the rabbit hole opened up. Something clicked in my head, that word degraded. Had Paul's gear degraded in some way and stopped protecting him, made him vulnerable? And is that where the toxins came in. I literally jumped up from the computer, ran down our basement stairs. I follow Diane down to the basement where Paul's old gear is stored, as she describes that day back in 2015. Grabbed his bunker gear out of the box and folded and put away in a box in the basement and grabbed a flashlight and pulled the gear apart layers of the gear and shine the flashlight into the crotch. Diane takes Paul's turnout gear out of its plastic wrap. When she pulls open the pants, it's split open and I can see the two layers. And you cut open, like you just cut this open? I didn't cut it open. See how this is, this is the outer shell. This is the moisture barrier and thermal liner. That would be the crotch there? That's the crotch, yeah. I see, I didn't realize that's how it was put together. Yes. Like an insert, Outer, like, like yes. the lining that you can zip into your winter coat. Exactly. Like if I open this up, there's a piece of Teflon in here. Can you pinch that, feel that? That's rubbery, that feels mm -hmm. like a mm -hmm. laminate. Mm -hmm. That's Teflon. This is the pajama wear that's next to their skin. They call that pajama cloth. And I saw these pulling quarter dime nickel piece sized pieces of fabric missing. And I thought, oh yeah. my God, this is real. This is real. Because it looked fine from the outside but you couldn't see what was missing on the inside. By this time, her reading had taught her the groin was a trouble spot. Sweating in that suit had destroyed a protective layer, exposing his groin to the next layer, the waterproof layer. You know, that's one of the most absorptive areas. I think they say it's 400 times 
more absorptive in the groin area on a firefighter and that because the body temperature rises, it, your skin becomes like a sponge. But what could his skin have absorbed? What was this gear made of? I didn't. I never knew this word before, components. The pieces of the gear. I started looking at the name brands on the, on the gear, Kevlar, Nomex. Then I'd learn how to Google Kevlar and Nomex and what's that all about? And oh, there's this name DuPont. Okay, well, what's that all about? She started writing emails to anyone whose name came up in articles about firefighter cancer or firefighter gear, scientists, environmental experts. She needed to know how this gear was made. Hardly anyone responded. So she wrote again and again, dozens of emails, and then hundreds. I'm interested that you wrote people again and again. Oh, yeah. And they didn't respond. Why did you keep writing? Because they didn't respond. I think that's where I found that um, one email wasn't going to get it done. It only took two emails for Erin Brockovich to respond. She wrote back, and she said, I've received your emails, Diane. Emailing Erin Brockovich was bold. Erin's name is synonymous with fighting industry, fighting for the little guy. And she and Diane are made of the same grit. Like Diane, Erin Brockovich didn't plan on becoming a detective and a whistleblower. She was working as a law clerk when she came across some medical files in a real estate case. She started investigating and learned that many people that lived in Hinkley, California, near a plant run by Pacific Gas and Electric, were getting sick. The company used a chemical, hexavalent chromium, to prevent rust in its equipment. For more than 30 years, that chemical poisoned the drinking water. The result was high rates of cancer, fertility problems, and other health issues. Internal PG&E documents, all about contamination. The one that I like best says, and well, I'm paraphrasing here, but it says, yes, the water's poisonous, but it would be better for all involved if this matter was not discussed with the neighbors. It's to the Hinkley Station from PG&E headquarters. Stamp received March 1966. Heron Brockovich built a case against the company and was successful in taking them to court. That was from a movie released in the year 2000 called Aaron Brockovich, with Julia Roberts playing Aaron. I wanted to come out here instead of calling because the judge came back with a number. For the whole group or both? He's going to make them pay $333 million. And... <laughs> And um, <laughs> and he's going to make them give five million of that to your family. The film received five Academy Award nominations, and Julia Roberts won Best Actor. It turns out hexavalent chromium, or chromium six, is in drinking water in all fifty U.S. states. It gets in there from industry discharges. Aaron Brockovich has spent the past twenty-five years fighting to get the chemical regulated and out of the drinking water. So a few days after that email, Aaron called Diane. We spoke for a long time on the phone that day, and she wanted to know what I had researched and what I had found, and she said, does the gear have PFOA or PFOS? I said, oh, God, I've, I've, I've never heard of that. What is it? And she said, it's a chemical that's used in 
making things waterproof and things started to click. So then I Googled PFOA and PFOS and firefighter turnout gear. She found that PFOIA and PFOS are members of a family, the PFAS family. Now, a little bit of chemistry here. PFAS stands for per-polyfluoroalkyl acids. Fluorine is what is put in drinking water to provide protection to our teeth and in most toothpaste, but it has a wide range of uses, like the production of nuclear material and the insulation of electric towers. Now, moving on to creating PFAS chemicals, Fluorine is the key ingredient. Fluorine atoms are combined with carbon atoms, and the result is a strong, durable chemical. A chemical that can be adapted for use in almost anything. Textiles, semiconductors, adhesives, sealants, and so on. The original PFAS were a chain of eight fluorine and carbon atoms, and so sometimes referred to as C8, but changed the length of the chain from eight to six carbon atoms, and voila, a new, slightly different chemical. Remember that numbering system because Diane discovered its importance. Diane also wanted to know how these chemicals are regulated. So then I Googled PFOA and PFOS and firefighter turnout gear. Took seconds and I found that Europe was beginning a potential transition to non-PFOA PPE. PPE stands for Personal Protective Equipment, and the European Union was ahead of the game. Not only had it decided PFAS chemicals were toxic, it was taking steps to force manufacturers to stop using them in many products, including firefighter turnout gear. This was 2015, and almost no one in North America knew much about PFOIA and PFAS. But it wouldn't take long before there was a need to understand them. You've probably heard a lot about PFAS in the news. PFAS refers to a family of man-made chemicals that were first created in the 1940s. PFAS are the main ingredient in a lot of products that are used today. Like when this education paint, video from the Michigan government says a lot of products, it's a long list. From Teflon pans to waterproof outdoor clothing to give stain resistance to carpets and upholstery, in food packaging, shampoo, nail polish, eye makeup, even dental floss. Diane learned these products were created during a period after the Second World War when people had money again and were hungry for the new. And there wasn't anything that science and chemists couldn't provide. The biggest chemical company was DuPont, headquartered in Wilmington, Delaware. Its logo and its influence was everywhere. The DuPont Theater, brought to you by DuPont, makers of better things for better living through chemistry. Nearly everything in our daily lives is improved by chemistry, from transportation to the clothes we wear. Chemistry helps bring us better food, makes our homes more beautiful, more comfortable, helps protect our health, and adds to the enjoyment of our leisure time. Now, tonight's story on the DuPont Theater. In 1967, DuPont began selling Nomex fiber. It was a breakthrough. It was heat and flame resistant. It was used in drapery fabrics for schools, hospitals, and nursing homes to protect people from fire and in firefighter clothing. As Paul Cotter and his colleagues found out, this new clothing was a game changer in protection and comfort. 
As Diane learned the names of the textiles, like Nomex, and the manufacturers, like DuPont, Lion, and Gore, she sent more emails and waited. And then I saw this safety alert from 1999 that the International Association of Firefighters demanding a recall on the moisture barrier that had degraded. The union had failed to convince the manufacturers to change how the protective layers in the turnout gear was created, and were now demanding it. Diane was shocked. These companies advertised all the time in firefighting magazines about the safety and the strength of their equipment. At all of these companies that are the standard bearers for us whenever we look at a fire engineering magazine or a house magazine or a periodical. You know, we're looking at how the, the gear manufacturers have your back and, you know, trust us. And I bought into that propaganda. I, it's all I'd seen. Why wouldn't I? And the realization set in that the IAFF is having to threaten to sue them to recall this. Where were the regulators? Why did a firefighting union need to demand a recall? And then I learned about this organization called the NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association. And I'm thinking, well, what do they got to do with anything? They're the non-governmental organization that writes the standards so that every aspect of firefighter turnout gear has to meet the NFPA standards. You have to order your gear that meets NFPA standards because you won't be insured if it doesn't. So the standard for safety is not set by a government regulator, but by an independent organization, the National Fire Protection Association. The association had a certification rule for turnout gear, what's called NFPA 1971. It requires the equipment be tested to withstand heat, flame, and be water-resistant. And only equipment manufactured with PFAS chemicals met that standard. So now Diane knew a lot. The name of the chemical that could be dangerous to firefighters and how they were getting exposed to it. Diane's office is too small to store the documents she's printed out, so we're upstairs looking through her boxes. Anything about this issue went into my folder, and I titled the folder years ago. Years and years ago, I titled the folder The Rabbit Hole, and it's just grown exponentially. She saved everything on the subject of PFAS, turnout gear, cancer, regulations. So how many, how many emails were sent and received? Over 25,000 now. She also kept a daily journal that started when she was a young bride, filled with life events like the birth and raising of her two children, but for the past decade filled with the highs and lows of fighting for information about firefighting turnout gear. Yeah, oh, this might be my first one when I started taking notes. Holy smokes. Wow. I'm going way back here. Way back machine. Endless notebook. In March 2017, Diane decided to go public with what she'd learned. She wrote an article for Station Pride, a firefighting website. She figured most firefighters and their families were as much in the dark as she and Paul were before his cancer. The article was called The Real Cancer in Your Turnout Gear. 
and it went viral. Diane got a call from the editor right after it was published. And he said, Diane, it's been downloaded a hundred thousand times. I think that day it's been shared thousands of times. I said, I'm watching. Nobody's commenting. Not one comment on here. It's just everybody tagging their firefighters. So now firefighters all over North America are asking questions about their gear. The gear manufacturers start a public relations campaign to discredit Diane's information. This is from an internal email between manufacturers Lion and Steadfast. Karen, this has been passed around by several firefighters in various departments. One was sent to me, and it's on Facebook. Long article, but there are comments read, manufacturers and chemicals in materials and cancer. I'm looking for thoughts as this is above my know-how and need ammo, please. Just in case. Lyon put out a fact sheet stating it had tested its gear and the results were, quote, virtually trace amounts, unquote, of PFOIA and zero of long-chain polyfluoroalkyl acids. Those long-chain chemicals are the ones with eight carbons, the C8. The union said it reviewed the tests, and it put out a notice to its members. It's unlikely that PFOA is present in any significant concentrations in uncontaminated new or recently manufactured turnout gear, and if present on the outer shell or within the moisture barrier of legacy turnout gear, the exposure of PFOA is likely to be minimal. Diane had gone to the union and said, you have to test the equipment. But the union didn't agree after talking to the manufacturers. At this time, IAFF does not recommend that legacy turnout gear be replaced outside of its life cycle. Firefighters wishing to minimize PFOA exposure should continue to wear their PPE and regularly decontaminate their turnout gear. I can remember saying, what a crock of shit. This looks like it's been written by Finn DuPont, for Christ's sakes. That's exactly what I said. And I remember reading it to Paul and him shaking his head and saying, who the fuck are they talking to? And then the union and industry turned on her. Anytime she posted something on Facebook, there was a whirlwind of negative responses. She was just a housewife. What did she know? How could she know what was safe and what wasn't? The editor of Fire Engineering, an online magazine, defended Diane by going public about the attacks. Bobby Halton spoke on the magazine's podcast, Hump Day Hangout, and he made it clear the attacks on Diane were orchestrated. She was persecuted and she was vilified. There were organized attacks. And I know that for a fact because I was cajoled to join one and said, no, I'm not interested. So there were people who were trying to discredit her relentlessly. You know, the pushback was so powerful because I had fire chiefs telling me, you're, you're crazy. I'm going to believe my union president before I believe you. And The IAFF union and the NFPA, which sets the standards, were the experts, and they were saying the turnout gear was safe. Was she trying to get the gear removed or banned? How stupid could she be? It was devastating. It was, oh, you know, 
the physical toll was that people were afraid of us. You know, we'd go to many functions and people that, that used to speak openly with us were not wanting to be around those crazy people. Diane was thrown by the attacks, but they also pissed her off, and it fueled her work. She took a close look at the NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association, at the minutes of meetings for any discussion about turnout gear, cancer, PFAS, anything to advance her knowledge. And she did find something unsettling. She could see that the NFPA and the union, the IAFF, were very connected to the turnout gear manufacturers. The manufacturers were on the NFPA committees and sponsored every IAFF event. All right, let me just start by thanking our sponsors again for, for uh, providing um, lunch for all of our attendees. We do appreciate that. And Diane noted that the 1999 demand for a recall had faded away. She could find no mention of it. Well, I couldn't get any answers if the chemicals were in the gear. You know, the, the contacts that I had through firefighters, they couldn't get information. We couldn't get information from the gear manufacturers. So she decided if the union wouldn't test the equipment, she would. Now she was sending emails to labs and universities looking for someone who could test the gear for PFAS. By this time, she had a community of people, and she reached out to them. So I wrote to the science community, and they said, well, you can ask Graham Peasley. He'll help you. So I sent an email to Dr. Peasley, and I was intimidated. I didn't know him. So often, her cold call emails took a long time to be answered. He replied almost immediately. He said, sure, I'll be happy to help. And it was just a heartfelt that somebody, she thought her husband had been exposed to these chemicals. That's Graham Peasley. I'm a professor at the University of Notre Dame. My background is I do teaching and research here at the university, but my research group is focused on the uh, rapid detection techniques of chemicals of concern. And I said I couldn't measure the exact chemicals, but I could measure fluorine as a surrogate for that, and I do that in all the other work. And if there was high fluorine, then there's probably PFAS. So uh, I said, sure, I'd be able to measure them. So remember, fluorine is the key ingredient in the PFAS family of chemicals. Graham's lab is a busy one. He's a physicist and a professor of experimental nuclear physics. He uses a particle accelerator to do his testing. A particle accelerator creates a beam of charged particles traveling almost at the speed of light. The beam is directed at a sample to test it for certain elements. The particle accelerator was why Graham agreed to do some tests on patches of material from the turnout gear. Our technique is very low cost compared to the typical techniques. We can measure it with three minutes of time, and most techniques take an hour or two. So it's expensive to run a typical chemical analysis, and so I had some students run them on top of some other samples we were running that day. So the beam created by his particle accelerator was set to identify fluorine. And we measure a signal that is uh, very sensitive towards fluorine, so we could measure how much fluorine was there. He asked a little bit about the, the turnout gear itself. What was it made of? I wanted to express how technical it was, that there were multiple layers. I don't think he knew that at that time. And he told me how to cut samples, made me prepare well for the samples because he had to have a control piece 
as well as having multiple pieces and had me even send an envelope that I didn't use so that he could test that envelope as well for PFAS. And when I ran them, they were very high. And uh, we double-checked and ran them a second time and like, whoa, those are loaded with fluorine. What was shocking was the amount. Now, understand by that point, I had read enough to understand that just an undetectable amount of PFOA would grow a tumor on a lab animal. And I was frantic. I know that firefighters walk around the station house all day in bunker pants and then throw the coat on. You're touching your hands, you're touching your face, you're eating a sandwich. Graham was also shocked. He asked Diane, do all firefighters wear this same turnout gear? He couldn't quite believe that firefighting gear could be manufactured with such a high concentration of a toxic chemical and in the inner layer next to the skin. The fact that it came back so highly fluorinated uh, set off alarm bells saying, oh, wait a second, there is some PFAS in here, and there seems to be a lot of it. It turned out to be very high concentrations of PFAS that was used because it was actually the outer layer and then the inner moisture barrier were both constructed out of pure PFAS material. Diane thought now she had the evidence to make people listen to her about the dangers in the turnout gear. But Graham told her it wasn't enough. I said, I can't publish just because you sent them to me, but if we could get more of them, I could, you know, we get 30 or 40 samples. That's enough to say, look, there seems to be a problem here. They're everywhere. Oh, gosh. So I, at that point, had thought that I was one and done. I'm like, okay, well, here's the proof. Now um, I'm done with this. I've washed my hands of it. And he said, Diane, you're going to need a bigger study. Next time on The Poison Detectives. I was selling sweatshirts and having yard sales so that I could produce enough money to pay for the analytical tests. And I knew, you know, I knew that within the second month of doing that, there was no way that I was going to be able to pay for 30 tests. No way. The podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Sandra Bartlett. Story editing by Backtrack Productions. Production assistance by Zara Kozema and David Mackay. The executive producer is Linda Solomon-Wood. This podcast received additional support from Creative BC and the province of British Columbia. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us. And I love reading your comments. Thanks for listening.